The Autobiographical Time-Traveling Adventures of Me by Doc Moran. Brought to you by Your Ad Here. You there. Your ad could be here. Get your act together, man. Episode 2, Track 61. Eight blocks to the north of Grand Central Terminal stood the Waldorf Astoria, New York's most hoity-toity hotel. Inside the opulent sitting room of the presidential suite on the 35th floor, the great man himself straightened his tie in front of a cheval floor mirror and gave himself the once-over. Looking back at him was a figure recognized the world over, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd President of the United States and America's most famous mama's boy, 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent wasp. Each detail of his appearance contributed to his iconic image. Pansnay glasses, jutting chin, and the cigarette in a holder thingy clenched in his smiling teeth that lent him an air of caricature. Handsome, despite the weight of age and responsibility that betrayed itself in the ashen gray around his eyes, his upper body communicated strength, even while his lower half was confined to a custom-made wheelchair, designed to the president's specifications from a dining chair to be unobtrusive and easily maneuverable. There was a soft knock on the door as Mike Riley, supervising Secret Service agent, let himself into the suite, crossed through the vestibule into the sitting room, and stood before the president. Due to long-held personal superstition, FDR refused to begin travel on a Friday, so late at night on a Thursday was a common start time for the president's itineraries. They'd need to get the let out if they wanted to beat the clock, though, and Mike was anxious to get going. "'Well, how do I look, Mike?' asked the president, pinching a dimple below a perfect Windsor knot. "'You look just spiffy, Mr. President,' came Mike's cursory reply. Sartorial critique was not part of his job description. To hurry things along, he added, "'We're ready for you, sir.' The president exhaled. "'Okay, Mike. Let's boogie.' Mike wheeled the president into the hall, where they joined four more Secret Service agents, nervously shuffling around the carpet by the waiting elevator. Once everyone stepped aboard, the elevator operator closed the doors, and the party descended to the Waldorf's garage." In addition to the top-notch amenities, the president stayed at the Waldorf Astoria because of a little-known component of the hotel's unique construction and location. The hotel stood on the former site of the old power and heating plant for Grand Central. The plant was relocated when the hotel was built, but the underground train tracks and platforms that once brought fuel and removed waste from the plant remained. This allowed for the creation of Track 61, a secret presidential siding that allowed a train to come to rest directly below the hotel. From Track 61, the President could disembark and ascend unobserved directly into the Waldorf's garage, and from there to the Presidential Suite, handy for clandestine visits and assignations. The elevator doors dinged open, and the President and his security detail emerged onto the garage floor. Arrangements had been made to keep hotel guests and other looky-loos out of the garage at this hour. Still, the agents stayed in tight formation and on high alert, like meerkats with shoulder holsters. They escorted the president to the center of the garage and the waiting Sunshine Special, FDR's armored Lincoln K-series convertible limousine. Beside it stood the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, intrepid crusader for the rights of man, small-D Democrat, big-D Democrat, and platonic spouse-slash-political partner to the president. She had just arrived to rendezvous with the president after spending the day at her private Greenwich Village apartment tending to business of her own. "'How are you feeling?' the first lady asked with some concern." Just bully, he barked. She frowned. Perhaps a bit too Uncle Theodore? Oh, he said, looking briefly crestfallen before bouncing back. I feel swell. Let's blow this popsicle stand. The President and First Lady were quickly secured in the back of the limousine. 
the chauffeur threw the car in gear, and, flanked by the Meerkatty's secret service agents, the limousine rolled across the garage and into a large freight elevator awaiting them on the far side. A few minutes later, the big elevator doors opened onto track 61, and Sunshine Special and Company emerged onto the dark and gloomy train platform, a sparsely lit industrial space of concrete and steel, far removed from the architectural elegance of the hotel above or the Grand Terminal to the south. Large pillars and heavy walls supported the ceiling, above which sat the immense bulk of the thriving city. Pipes and conduits of indeterminate function ran all higgledy-piggledy, and everything in sight was the color of oil and dirt. Beside the platform sat the long length of the presidential special, a private train containing the president's private car, secret service car, diner, Pullman's berths, a club car, communications car, and just behind the engine, the automobile car, a mobile garage adapted from an oversized baggage car formerly used by the Barnum & Bailey Circus to haul scenery and animals. A large ramp extended down from the wide doorway, ready to receive the Sunshine Special. Mike looked the joint over. Something was wrong. There should have been a flurry of last-minute activity, full of train crew, staff, porters, and additional Secret Service agents, but there was no one in sight and no sound but the muffled rumbling of distant trains. "'Where is everybody?' asked Mike. Wait with the president, he barked to the other agents as he drew his service revolver and bounded up the ramp of the automobile carrier. Peeking carefully inside the open door, to the left he saw several figures sprawled on the floor. Unconscious? Dead? He glanced to the right and saw two more laying face down. Someone had taken out everybody on the train. Oh, fuck balls, said Mike, and raced back down the ramp toward the president and first lady. At the bottom of the ramp his foot met with a splash. Only then did he notice a sound on the edge of hearing that had been trying to get his attention. It sounded like an overflowing bathtub. The train platform was awash, water flooding in from somewhere. A deepening puddle swirled around the president's car. The surrounding Secret Service agents were looking down at their feet in surprise and confusion as the water soaked their shoes and socks. "'What in the name of Busby Berkeley?' said Mike. He looked to the far end of the bay where the platform receded into the darkness of the train tunnel. The water was definitely coming from that direction. Suddenly, Mike was jolted by an excruciating, all-encompassing pain. Every muscle in his body spasmed and his jaw clenched shut. Every hair on his body stood on end. Even his stubble snapped to attention. He couldn't move. All of the agents had become completely immobilized by an electric current passing through the flooding water. Arcs of light jumped and jolted across the surface. Crackling electricity danced across metal pipes, grates, barriers, and beams. Then, as suddenly as it began, the current ceased, and Mike and his fellow agents hit the ground harder than a pile of babies falling out of a wet paper bag. End of Episode 2 If you're enjoying the series, you can send a Venmo tip at Doc Moran. All one word.